We love stories. We love stories. At the height of the civil rights movement, T.C. Williams became the first school in the district to integrate black and white students. Challenges would come not only in the classroom, but also on the football field. And yet under the leadership of Coach Herman Boone, the students would put aside their differences and make sure that we always remember the Titans. We love stories. Free thinking Elizabeth Bennett is disgusted by the wealthy Mr. Darcy. He is arrogant and highbrowed. Mr. Darcy considers her beneath him. And yet both fall in love as they put aside their pride and prejudice. Again, we love stories. Mostly the girls, that one, but we still, we love, we love stories. Andy had always been his best friend. They would spend mornings and afternoons together defeating the likes of the evil Dr. Porkchop until one day at Andy's birthday, an obstacle came in their relationship. Buzz Lightyear. Unknowingly kidnapped at a young age, Rapunzel always yearned to see the floating lights. Her mother, who always knew best, said no. But as Flynn Rider was brought into her life, either by fate or by a horse, Rapunzel would go on an adventure where she'd not only find herself, but true love. Aww. Thus proving that even the most sheltered of homeschoolers can find true love <laughs> in less than 24 hours. But not at camp. But not at camp. We love stories. They stick with us. They're memorable. They connect us. They engage us. Uh, when we find a, a good story, we, we can't help but be enraptured with it. And, and stories are not a, a new invention. Uh, people have been telling stories as long as people have been around. And even old stories are interesting. You think about the Odyssey with Odysseus. You think of Aesop's fables, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, or even the modern story of a girl from District 12 with, with nothing but a bow and arrow overthrew the capital. Right, we love stories. Uh, from the first time your parents told you a story in bed or in the car, uh, to those books that you read in elementary school, uh, to that movie that you saw, you were just so caught up in the story. There's something about a good story that captivates us. Why is that? What makes them so intriguing? Why, when you're in the middle of a good book, is it so hard to say, I'm just gonna read one more page? Why, when you're in the middle of a movie or a show, can you not get away from the story? What is it that's so compelling? What is it that when you're at church, and you're kind of tuning out, maybe because you didn't go to bed early on Saturday night, that when your pastor says, you know, this reminds me of a story, your head immediately pops back up. It's, stories draw us in. They're powerful. They move us. Sure, it's fun to have stories about you know, freaks of nature who dress up in costumes and defeat you know, big giant purple guys. But at the same time, there's something that we connect with. They're not just freaks of nature, they're people like us who love their kids 3,000, right? Am I right? I know, I know, I know. It was fake, by the way, but anyway, right? There's stories. One author said it like this, good stories surprise us. They make us think and feel. 
they stick in our minds and help us remember ideas and concepts in a way that PowerPoints and bar graphs never can. So they move us. Like that time you're in elementary school and some of you, maybe not all of you, read that book, Where the Red Fern Grows. And you're like, I'm never gonna cry in a story. And then he buries old Dan and little Ann because dogs do die. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. But, right, you're sad. Now, not all stories move you. Not as many of you were moved to tears about the story of a luchador defending the orphans <laughs> to bring down Ramses with his eagle powers. Not all of those do that, but stories sometimes move us. Sometimes they make us stop and consider. So you get done watching a movie like, you know, about P.T. Barnum, and you think, am I spending enough time with my family? You watch a sports movie, and you're inspired. Yes, I too can defeat the Soviets, or maybe, maybe make the team. Uh, you know, you, you see a heroic war movie, you're inspired to have courage. Uh, stories also can amplify or mirror our values. You know, we see stories and we like and acknowledge values that we ourselves have. In fact, it sometimes increases those. Different authors said it like this. Stories, as it turns out, were crucial to our evolution. Well, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, she says, they're, they're more crucial than opposable thumbs. Opposable thumbs let us hang on. Stories told us what to hang on to. Stories have the ability also to transport us to different places that we could never actually visit in real life. So you can go to the streets of Agrabah or to Middle Earth or to magical places like Arendelle. They're, they're all places that we imagine and we think of and we dream of. And they're so powerful, even a lot of businesses today want to connect you to a story. You don't just buy this coffee because it's good, but buy this coffee because it was farmed at a place in South America where we're trying to help refugees, right? You get connected with their story, you get connected with their cause. Or perhaps one of the bigger reasons that we like stories is we like to picture ourselves in the story. We all crave to be part of something greater, some greater purpose, some greater narrative, some greater direction. We all want to personally identify with some greater story. Last quote, different author says, we are as a species addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. We love stories. And yet it should come, to, it should come as no surprise to us that the Bible itself is a story. This book, uh, the greatest book, uh, from the greatest author, as we already said, his very words, his very breath, is in itself a story. If you were to read the Bible cover to cover, you would find uh, many different writing styles, many different genres. You would find poetry, you would find law, you would find prophecy, you would find instruction, but you know you would find a lot of is narrative. Drama, cliffhangers, spoilers, foreshadowing, resolution, justice, climax, and solutions. Yes, the Bible does have stories. And a lot of you know these stories, even if you're not familiar with the Bible. You know about Daniel in the lion's den. You know about Moses in the burning bush. Uh, you know about Noah's ark, David and Goliath. 
But I want you to realize something different and maybe something you've never realized before. We're talking about that this book really is, as our theme of camp, is one story. That there is a great narrative running through scripture. Uh, That the Bible is not just 66 individual books. Each book of the Bible is important and is able to be read on its own. And yet I've heard it described in this way by, by a pastor that if you had all 66 books on the bookshelf and you were to kind of randomly go through and I'm gonna take this book right in the middle, let's say you're gonna pull out Isaiah or you're gonna pull out Jeremiah or Haggai, you're gonna pull out that book, what you would find is that there is actually a thread running through all the books. And as you pull off one book, it's actually part of a storyline that's been running throughout the Bible. That the Bible is one great narrative. That's what we'll be looking at this week. During these sermons, during these seven times, I want us to walk through the story of the Bible. That's, there's a few reasons we're doing that. You know, one of them could just be to say, I went to camp and I studied the whole Bible. Boom. Check that off your list. That's not the main reason we're doing it, but you know, you could say that. You could write that in your accomplishments list at the end of camp. But there's a, there's a few reasons why we're doing this. One is so that the Bible actually makes sense, all right? You need to know the full story to understand the, the smaller parts. Uh, it's, like, uh, it's like that friend who didn't see any of the Avengers movies, but had all the questions during Endgame. And you're like, dude, if you just watch the other stuff, you wouldn't have these questions. Maybe you are that friend, that's okay, we'll pray for you. But the, uh, the, idea, is, the idea is that there's been a story happening. Well, same thing with the Bible. Often we parachute just into our New Testament or we parachute into the Psalms, but we're not aware of the greater storyline that's been occurring within the scripture. And others, the sea the glory of God in the Bible. That when we see the story of the Bible, we stop reading it like a recipe book to deal with whatever issue we have that day. Okay, anxiety, let's see what I need here. Uh, Boldness, what do I do here? No, but realize that this book is actually about God. And God has been communicating the greatness and the glory of who he is through this narrative of scripture. And at the same time, we're doing this to help you figure out your story. That's big in our language today. What's your story? Tell us about you, your history, your direction, your purpose, where you've been, who you are, and where you're going. Everybody wants a story. You know what's good about the Bible is it's not just a story. It's the story. And we're not gonna read the Bible this week to fit it into our narrative. In fact, we're gonna read it to make sure that we fit in to God's narrative. So that's what we're studying this week. We're gonna look at this story of the Bible and I think you're gonna be encouraged. I think you're gonna be helped. If you're new to Christianity or maybe new to religion, uh, you're gonna find this very helpful because you're gonna get very clearly this is what the Bible is all about. And if you've gone to church your whole life, uh, some of this, I'm just guarantee now, you're gonna see things you've never seen before in the text and you're gonna be encouraged and reminded of how to live for the Lord as we look at this one story. So we're looking at the story tonight. I'm looking at part one. We're gonna look at it very quickly. Every good story starts in the beginning. So we're going to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. If you got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter one, right at the very beginning. It is the place where we have to start so that way we can get the ball rolling on this great story of scripture. Genesis chapter one. You know these texts. I'm not going to read all of them. 
And I want to read enough so that way we get the main idea. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1. The word of God reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And he saw that it was good. Jump down to verse 26. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. This is one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. E- even irreligious people know about it. Even unbelievers know, let there be light and flip the switch, right? Even unbelievers understand something about this. And I'm sure you've grown up hearing this story. You've created crafts. Uh, you've learned songs. Uh, you've studied and you know, maybe made little charts to memorize all the different things. But the question we need to ask is, why is this story in the Bible? Obviously, it's first, and it's accurate, but why is it here? You know, it's it's not here just to provide an introduction. Well, we have to have an introduction, so let's start with this. That's not the only reason, though it does provide an introduction. Uh, It is not here uh, to debunk evolution, though it certainly does. Tell us that God creates everything ex nihilo out of nothing. Uh, But really, what these verses are here to do is to begin the story. Uh, these, these verses, these opening chapters of Genesis really set the framework for the biblical narrative. 
They help us understand how things were and how things ought to be. Uh, You see, the author is not interested in this chapter in explaining dinosaurs. The author is not interested in this chapter and trying to figure out how people lived so long with this water expanse and, you know, why did people live so long back then? Uh, there's no, in this chapter here, the science uh, behind how there was light without a sun. Uh, that's not the aim here. But what this chapter is actually about is about God. This chapter aims to teach us something about God. And see, that's what's so different about the biblical narrative. Uh, that most of the times when we approach the Bible, and really when we approach life in general, we think that the story is about us. And so we're going through our day thinking about us, how our decisions impact other people. We're so consumed with how we're viewed and how we might influence others. But this story from the beginning has one main character, and it's God. Tonight, there's a lot we could learn in Genesis 1, but I want to keep it simple. I want to keep it brief. I want to set you up for the rest of the week, so make sure you're taking notes. I want you to notice three things in this passage tonight. I've just got three observations I want you to see. I want you to see something about God. I want you to see something about man. And I want you to see something about God and man. We're going to see something about God, something about man, and something about God and man. Here's the first one, point number one. Something about God, it's this. From Genesis 1, we learn that God is king. Point number one, God is king. Genesis is communicating to us the kingship of God. God is incomprehensible in this text. It just begins with in the beginning. He just is. He's always existed. And the text is okay with that. We cannot really plumb the depths of that reality. But there was never a time when the God of the universe did not exist. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Uh, What else is incomprehensible about this text is his power. He speaks and things just come forth. He speaks and you see birds and you see galaxies I've always just loved verse 16 where it says he created the sun and he created the moon. And at the very end it says, and the stars. Just like an afterthought. And he created the stars as well. Uh, There are a lot of things we can't quite understand about God in this passage. A lot of questions go unanswered in Genesis 1. But one thing is very, very clear. God has authority. Uh, the, the biblical writer, this narrative here, wants to show us that from the beginning that God has authority. The creation account heralds, it celebrates his majesty and his power, his unrivaled dominion over his universe. I mean, think about the authority he has. He speaks into nothing, and nothing obeys by becoming something. It's not just power, it's authority. And again, this isn't some some movie with cinematic effects. This is real. We see that the earth is formless and void and with just words, we have lunar cycles and cell membranes and breathtaking mountain peaks and pristine lakes. This is God's word. It all happens at his command. 
There is a royal feel to Genesis chapter one. And though the, the word king does not really show up, it's clear that God is king from the beginning. Now we know this, Psalm 74, 12, yet God is my king from old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. That's Psalm 74, 12. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He did not just make it, he owns it. And he is king. You see, Genesis would have been very, very different, would have painted a very, very different picture of God than the other religions of the time it was written. See, they all believed in regionalized gods. So you'd have, you know, the God of the Philistines would live in the land of the Philistines. The God of the Moabites, so he primarily lived in the land of Moab. In modern day, you know, the God of California would live in California. The God of Texas would live in Texas, you know. But we see here is that this isn't a God that's restricted to one spot. He rules the whole earth and all of it belongs to him. You even see his dominion. Did you notice this? In his naming of things. So did you see there in verse five that he called the light day and he called the darkness night. And again in verse eight, he called the expanse heaven. He called the dry land, verse 10, earth. He called the water seas. You see, when you name something, that means that you have authority over it. You have ownership. I remember in the early 2000s, there was a basketball team in the city of New Orleans called the New Orleans Hornets. They used to be the Charlotte Hornets. They moved to New Orleans. Hornets are scary. There's like some wasp out there already. I think some of you already got bit. That's okay. We'll, we'll work through this together. That's an intimidating animal maybe. I, I don't like bugs, so I'm good with that. And yet in 2013, the New Orleans Hornets changed their name to one of the fiercest animals known to mankind, the pelicans. This is true. A multi-million dollar organization said, we are changing our name to the New Orleans pelicans. Have you seen pelicans? They are not an attractive bird. They live by the ocean. No, I'm, I'm cool with them. I mean, I, I started rooting for them because I said, if any team's gonna root, you know, change their name to the pelicans, I'm in on that team right there. I'm going for it, right? They, they picked that. Now, why did they do that? I'll tell you why, because there was an owner named Tom Benson who grew up in the state of Louisiana. The state bird of Louisiana is the pelican. He owned the team. He had the right to change the name. When you see that God is naming things in Genesis 1, it's because he has authority. He owns it. So he can name it. And what is clear in this text is that God is king. Uh, but before moving on from point one, I just want to point out one other thing. Because when we think kings, when we think rulers, we think tyrants. But you know what I already see in Genesis 1? It's that God is a good king. He is a good king. Over and over again, did you hear it as I read through it? He created it and he saw that it was good. You see the goodness of God in that he blesses creation. Uh, he makes it good. It, creation is good because God himself is good. 
Friends, you know this when you look at the beauty and the splendor and even just the greatness of creation. You see the goodness of God and you see rivers and oceans. When you see the beauty and the creativity of the seasons, maybe not in California, but, but you know, the seasons. Oh, and there's so much variety in the animal kingdom. You know God's goodness when you bite into the savory taste of a steak and when you taste the sweetness of an orange. You know God's goodness in his creation, a creation without blemish. So God is king. He, he is the only king. He is a good king. Second, we learn something about man in this passage. We learn that man is an image bearer. Hyphenated word there. Man is an image bearer. Here we learn about man. And it's interesting. Uh, today we're, we're all about identity. You need to identify who you are, figure out who your identity is at your campus, figure out your identity in the society, and you create your identity. Man's first identity in, this, in the Bible is that he is a creature who is given his identity. Uh, he is not autonomous. He is subservient to the ruler. And again, he could do that because he rules us. But take a look at verse 26, 27. You heard me read it. We, we read that man is an image bearer, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And again, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So we see here that man is an image bearer. And by the way, this is both for men and women, that all of humanity, every single person is created in the image of God, that they bear the image of God. Uh, this is true of everyone in this room, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of gender, all are created in the image of God. This is, by the way, part of why, as Christians, uh, we show honor to every single person, uh, because every person has an inherent dignity as an image bearer. But what exactly does this mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Think about that. What does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that we're lookalikes. Like God doesn't look like this. God doesn't have, you know, arms and legs. Uh, God isn't six foot four. You know, God doesn't look like us. Uh, he doesn't have bodies like we do. Uh, the Bible's clear, God is spirit. Uh, but what does this mean? Well, it's, it's long been thought and truly thought that, that to be an image bearer of God means that there are ways that we are like God. That we are ways that we resemble him. You know, you've, you've heard the expression spitting image. You're the spitting image of your mom, spitting image of your dad. You look like them. I did that, uh, that face app uh, a few days ago, and I just went, oh, man, I'm on a path. I just look at my dad, and I just know this is it. We're like twins. We're brothers. Some of you, you, have your, you look at uh, your parents, and they have certain quirks that when you were younger, you were like, man, I'm never going to do that. And as you've gotten older, you're like, Man, I always do that. I actually kind of want to do that. What is wrong with me? Anyway, right? Like we, there's ways that we're like them. Well, similarly, we're, there are ways that we are like God. There are ways that we're different than the animals, that we're different than the rest of creation. That's why we're created last. And it's because of our God-like characteristics, our ability to reason, our range of emotion, our rational thought. You've never seen your dog at home slumped over like this. Oh, 
How am I going to provide for the kids? What are we going to do? I could mortgage the kennel, maybe. Maybe we'll buy cheaper bones next month. Right, like your dogs don't do that, probably, uh, unless you've trained them really, really well. Uh, but right, that's, that's not like them. They just think bone, eat, ball, fetch, sleep now. That's, that's, their, that's their pattern of life. So we're different, we think rationally. But here's what I want you to notice in this passage. Being created in the image of God isn't just about how we're built. It's about why we're built. It's not just about how we are created, It's about why you were created. As an image bearer, it's not just your makeup, your DNA. It has to do with your very existence. Think for a second about images. What do images do? They represent. So I could, you know, talk to you about burgers. I could talk to you about fries but I put up the image of the golden arches. What do you think of? You think of maybe the games if you're on Team McDonald's, but you, you, right, you, you think of quarter pounders, you think of drive-throughs, right? You, you think of McDonald's. Images represent. Uh, think about even the, the American flag, the song, The Star-Spangled Banner, that we still see that, that flag, that our flag was still there. Or you think of the, the scene of the, the Marines putting up the flag at Iwo Jima. What does that image represent? Well, it represents America, but it also represents victory. It represents, for those images, triumph. Now, what we have here, though, is that we were created in God's image. And even in Jesus' day, images were meant to show rule, dominion, supremacy, Remember, they bring a coin to Jesus, or they ask Jesus if they should pay taxes. Jesus says, who's on the coin? They say, well, Caesar's on the coin. Well, why is Caesar on the coin? Because Caesar rules the empire. That's why he's on the coin. His image is everywhere to show his rule. It's common practice in those days that rulers would put their image up, even in areas where they did not live, so people would know about their reign. Therefore, to be created in the image of God is a responsibility. What is that? That we are to be an image of God's rule. We are meant, ready, to image him, to show people what he's like and to be a representation not of ourselves, but of his rule over the world. Uh, Listen even to the dominion language of verse 28 when he tells them to be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, have dominion. What are they doing? They are ruling the earth on God's behalf. It's like they're little kings. Another word that's used is vice regents. They're kings, little K kings, ruling on behalf of the big K king. We are, ready friends, created to extend his reign. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Now again, that sounds very different from the world today. Because usually we think about lifting up our reign, our greatness, But see, that's why so many people are so confused with this self-realization, make yourself the center of your own story. That's why so many people are depressed, because that's not the way you were created. You were created to, to reflect the greatness of another. And friends, freedom comes from understanding how we were supposed to live. Some people say, no, I need freedom. That means I need to be able to do whatever I want. Really? Do you realize that, that real freedom, real joy comes from restriction? 
If I were to, to go to a river and grab a fish, that would be amazing, uh, first of all. Uh, I don't think I could ever pull that off, but let's pretend for a second. If I were to grab a fish and throw that fish on the land and say, be free, fish, no longer shall the river bind thee. That'd be weird. But also, it'd be very, uh, very unfulfilling, because what would that fish do? Just flop, right? A fish isn't free when it gets to go do whatever it wants. A fish is free when it's restricted to the area in which it was created and what it was created for. Same ways, friend. If we are to live well in the story that's governing this universe, we have to understand what we were created for, to image God and to extend his reign. Finally, number three, what have we seen? We've learned something about God, he is king. Something about man, man is an image bearer. Number three, we learn about God and man, it's this. God and man were meant for relationship. Last point, we'll go brief, but we need to see this. We see that God is king, and that we're supposed to image him and not us. But this relationship is not a cold relationship. It's not the harsh relationship of a master and a slave. It's not even the obligation relationship of a boss and an employee. There is a nearness. Take a look at chapter two, verse seven. Chapter two, verse seven. It says that in the creation of man, that then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Do you hear how personal that is? That it says that God formed him. That's a pottery term. God personally, he spoke creation. He spoke mountains, he spoke galaxies, but he forms us. That he breathed into man the breath of life. That he even, it goes on to say that he planted the man. Again, it's all personal. That there is a nearness and an intimacy. Friends, we don't quite get this because we don't quite see it today. But we were created to be near to the king. Yes, he is king. And yes, we are his servants. But there's supposed to be an intimacy there. There's a nearness, a friendship even a closeness that we were designed to have. And that's Genesis 1. That's beginning of Genesis 2. That's how the story begins. The introduction of this great story that we'll look at. God's reign, man's purpose, our relationship with God. That's the story, in fact, I'll even say this, it is meant to be your story. That's the story that we're all supposed to find ourselves in. Here's the question I wanna have tonight. You're gonna go to small groups later. Here's the question I want you to be thinking about as you go into groups and as you're listening to these sermons this week. Are you living in the right story? Are you living in the biblical story or are you living in your own story?
There's something in Hollywood called method acting. It is a technique of acting in which an actor aspires to complete emotional identification with a part. It's not just they want to pretend to be this person, they want to become the role that they're playing. There's a lot of famous stories of this. Jack Nicholson, and for the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, immersed himself in an insane asylum. He immersed himself in his role, studied it, even participated in group discussions. Heath Ledger, who famously played the Joker, was known to have locked himself in his room with nothing but comic books so he could immerse himself in the character. But wouldn't it be sad, and it is also true, if you believed that you actually were the character you were inventing, wouldn't it be sad that if you couldn't actually tell the difference between the real story and the fake story from reality and the drama? Friend, don't let that happen to you on a spiritual level. As you hear this narrative this week, ask yourself, am I living in the world that God has created or have I made myself my own God with my own narrative? Come listen to the real story. A story that tells us where we started, where we are, and where history is going. A story that makes sense of our greatest faults and gives hopes to our loftiest desires. This is the story, friends, of God's goodness, of man's weakness, of Christ's beauty. And you'll see that this is not just a story. This is the story. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what, what you've taught us in your truth. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, I pray that this week as we look at your word and as we walk through the Bible, that you would help us evaluate ourselves in light of biblical history. That as we see the story of what you've been doing to magnify yourself, that we would be sure that we are in line with it. Father, I pray for these students that you would grow them through your word this week, that you would save some and mature others. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.